0: fear the Lord, you his saints, for there is no want to those who truly revere and worship him with godly fear. The young lions lack food and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord, none of them shall lack any beneficial thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you to revere and worshipfully fear the Lord. What man is he who desires life and longs for many days, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil. And your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek inquire for and crave peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. To cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their distress and troubles. The Lord is close to those who are of a broken heart and saves such as are crushed with sorrow for sin and are humbly and thoroughly penitent.
1: Amen. Amen. Thank you, Veronica, for reading Psalm 34 for us. And today, as she has just finished reading Psalm 34, or I should say at least the middle, middle portion of Psalm 34, we are reminded that we are wrapping up our summer in the Psalms this morning. Next week, we'll go back to the Gospel of John. I'm very excited that, that our plan is to finish out the Gospel of John this fall. And, and yet today, we are here in the gift of Psalm 34. I hope that the Psalms have been a refreshment to your devotional life. That they've refreshed how you approach spending time with Jesus each and every day, every moment of the day, that they've been a good guide for you. See, as a, 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 the early days of the New Testament church has always treated the book of the Psalms as a, a book of prayer, a, a guide to prayer. They've guided the devotional life of followers of Christ from the early days that the church was founded. See, the the reason is that when Jesus told his followers that they are to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, he was calling them to to do something that is much deeper than the work we're familiar with doing. For us to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, it requires us to do a a deeper work in our soul, and the language of our soul is an unfamiliar language to many of us. And so as a guide to prayer, the, the Psalms help us to express... The, the language of what's going on deep down within us, our innermost being. Uh, one pastor, pe, uh, pa, uh, Dr. Ted Wiesty, who is a pastor out in the West, uh, he, he said this. He said that the Psalms are of great benefit to our devotional life. And he describes the, the benefit like this. He says, the Psalms give us permission to be a people in process and transition. Far too often we feel the need to parrot good theology. But the Psalms encourage us to express the real us, those parts of us which doubt, which feel anger, express confusion, uh, disappointment, or, or even darkness. In other words, I believe the Psalms help us to peel back the masks that we sometimes wear when we enter into religious circles out of fear of not being good enough for God or not being good enough for other followers of Jesus. But the work that that the Psalms help us do help us deal with the reality in our hearts, the questions and doubts, the fears and concerns. Giving voice to those places help us grow in our faith with Christ and in Christ in in, in almost inexplicable ways. Loving God with our heart, mind, and soul is not just an invitation to have a, a correct knowledge about God. It's an invitation to be transformed by God as we allow him into those places of our lives that we guard so heavily on a day-to-day basis. See, the psalm that Veronica read for us is a good example of this kind of process that happens with the psalms. Because it's it's a story of something happening in in David's life where he comes through an experience and his invitation to you and I, to everyone who who takes advantage of, of praying the psalm that he's written, it's an invitation for us to experience God with our whole being, to love Him with our heart, mind, and soul, to, to, to not just have proper beliefs about Him, but to embrace Him with our will and our emotions and our values. See, Psalm 34 it, it is a mixture of personal testimony and invitation. There's a, a, something that happens really interesting in David's life, but he doesn't just want to tell us that, hey, God has been good to me. He wants us to share in that experience with Him, to, to not just know that God did something good in his life, but his desire is to say, hey, this can be true for you too. You should experience it for yourself. Take advantage of what God is doing and what he, who he is. See, depending on what your Bible may uh, some Bibles, most Bibles have a little notation at the beginning of Psalm 34. A- and in my Bible, it says that, that Psalm 34 is of David when he changed his mind and changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and went away. What this is referring to is is an event in David's life that's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And in 1 Samuel chapter 21, he's dealing with this uh, moment in his life when King Saul is overwhelmed with jealousy toward David. People are singing songs about David. They're celebrating him. I, I wish people sang songs about me. No, that's, that's probably, that's a little too arrogant. I'm sorry, that's not true. I don't, I don't think the songs that they would sing about me would be very pretty. But the songs they sang about David were, were awesome enough that it, it caused a little bit of rage in King Saul. He became so jealous. He knew that God had anointed David as the next king of Israel, that he had been, in essence, pretty much dethroned, even though he physically sat on the throne of Israel. And, and he was overwhelmed with anger and rage. And, and, and so he's hunting David down. He's looking to take him and to kill him. And not only that, but when David flees, David makes a fatal error. Because David flees to a a city uh, called Gath. Now, Gath is a Philistine city. And if you know anything of David's life, you know that he's famous for defeating a a particular Philistine, Goliath. And so when he realizes his mistake, he's already there in the presence of the king. He's, He's there in the city. And he realizes, man, I'm, I'm in, I have no more safety now than I had when I was with Saul. So he's got to try and figure out how he gets through this. What comes to mind for him is he starts acting crazy. He starts going bonkers. He starts literally drooling all over himself and all over his beard to the point where uh, King Abimelech says, oh, you know what, this guy is nuts. Get him away from me. He's not a danger. Let's, let's just get rid of him. And so it's in this moment that David is walking away from Gath Running to to safety again, and and praising God for how God has rescued him from the danger that he's faced, both with Saul and and with Abimelech. Now, Psalm 34 is a portrayal of David, where where David is like this kid who just got off riding a roller coaster for the first time, saying, that was awesome, you've got to try this, right? His testimony is that um, this is amazing, this is incredible, but that's just part of his testimony, because the other part of his testimony is you gotta try this. Try it for yourself. This is, you're gonna love it, right? And so the key to understanding Psalm 34 for you and I this morning is found right there in the middle of the Psalm. Veronica read it for us, verses eight and nine. She read this. She said, uh, David says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him, have no lack. See, David's saying, Listen, you want to have the good life? I found it. I found the good life. I found what people are looking for. It's found in the Lord. You want you want security? You want rescue? You want contentment? You want safety? It's found in the Lord. You want you want a life that lacks no good thing? It's found in the Lord, right? But don't just take my word for it, David says. Don't don't just don't let the preacher just stand up in the pulpit and tell you about the word of God. Experience it for yourself. Don't let Pastor Dan stand up and tell you about the word of God, and then go home to the rest of your day and the rest of your week. Experience it for yourself. Taste it and see for yourself that the Lord is good. Now, growing up, uh, I uh, here comes my food illustration for the week. Growing up, I was not a big fan of pea soup, right? I don't know, maybe you're a fan of pea soup, but growing up, I struggled with pea soup because whenever my mom put a bowl of green, uh, the green soup in front of me, my color, uh, the color of my skin matched the color of the soup in the bowl and, and, and the gagging commenced, right? It was a battle. I mean, I'm sure my mom would tell you how frustrated she was every time she tried to feed me pea soup at home. But something interesting happened along the way because as, as I grew up, uh, something changed in me. In fact, I know what it was that changed in me. I had an experience where I watched someone else not just eat pea soup, but enjoy pea soup. And, and somehow, some sort of switch in my brain flipped on, where watching them enjoy pea soup said, maybe it's not as bad as I remember it. And so you know what I did? I tried it. And I liked it. I was like Mikey from that cereal commercial, Life, right? Mikey likes it. Pastor Dan likes it. Right? He likes the pea soup, finally. See, David's invitation is for us to taste and see that the Lord is good for ourselves. Right? It's not to sit back and say, no, that doesn't look good. I don't want a piece of it. It's to say, hey, we can look at David. David loved it. David loved it. And, and so maybe, maybe there's something to this that we, too, are missing out on. See, many of us have this posture toward Christianity that that I had towards pea soup. For some of us, we we look at Christianity and we we struggle to see what's so good about it, right? We know of Christians in our lives whose character doesn't reflect character that we would want to emulate, right? I mean, we see it all the time uh, online and social media and whatnot, where we see someone's character reflected in their words and their actions, and we think, ah, if that's what a Christian is, I don't, I don't want to be a part of that. For others of us, we, we generally understand the ideas about Christianity. We, we understand the, the doctrines, the beliefs about Christianity. But we don't like the idea of being challenged to live a life that, invites us, that, it, that it invites us into. In other words, I don't think that all of us, many of us, really enjoy the idea of putting the authority of our lives into someone else's hands we like knowing that we have the authority to determine what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong. I mean, we may not say that in conversation, but practically speaking, how we live our lives, turning over authority to our lives to someone else is a very difficult thing. And a faith that turns over our individual authority to God, to Jesus Christ, who is our King, is a challenge for many of us. And so... What becomes our response towards Christianity? We kind of take that, that bowl and we say, no, thank you. No, thanks. I've had enough. I, I see Christianity kind of does something in my tummy that I don't like. Makes me turn color. I, 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 I'd rather not. Thank you, though. See, there's a, a theologian, uh, G.K. Chesterton, who, who said this. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting... In other words, we didn't taste of the soup and say, nah, it's not really my thing. Most often, Christianity as an ideal, he said, has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. Says so You know, I don't, I don't want to have to change my life. I don't want to change the way I'm doing things. I like the way I'm doing it. I, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. I like... I I like to control my understanding of of my world and who I am and and Christianity and religion, right? For many of us, Christianity hasn't been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. See, even some of us who've been going to church are are more like the the National Guard's weekend warriors where where we show up on Sunday morning. We, we, We like to claim to be these Christians, but then we haven't really given control of our life to Jesus. Jesus isn't really our Lord and King, right? We, we, we struggle to, to be that person that hands over authority to our life, of our lives to him. And so we haven't really taken refuge in him by faith. Peter suggests that, that trusting in the Lord, though, trusting in, uh, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good is really the first step of faith. That, that it's not so much about making sure you have the correct understanding of who God is and who Jesus is and then you can believe. This invitation that David extends to us through Psalm 34 is understood by the New Testament apostles that, that, is, that this becomes like that first step in our faith journey of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. This is my testimony. I grew up in a Christian home. I was surrounded by the idea of the truth of scripture, the the reality of a relationship with God. But when I actually chose individually to to respond to that first taste that I had of Jesus, that I tasted for myself that Jesus truly is who he says he is, and man, it's good. Even Even though the circumstances of my life may be difficult to taste and see that the Lord is good, that changed everything about the trajectory of my life listen to what Peter says in first Peter chapter 2 he says this this isn't gonna be on the screen for us so uh, feel free to read along in your Bibles or on your app on your phone the Bible app on your phone Peter says this he says in chapter 2 so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk That by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Right? It's not just a matter of me holding up the Bible and and you hearing me read it to you. What matters is our response. Do we hear David's invitation to taste and see that the Lord is good? In, In your time with Jesus, do you taste and see that the Lord is good for yourself, or do you read the devotionals that we read and say, okay, that's good enough, I've checked that box? Do you allow your relationship to, uh, with Jesus to be one where you taste and see that the Lord is good? The first step of faith is not going to church. It's not growing up in a Christian family. It's tasting and seeing that the Lord is good for, for yourself. Hear that, it's, it's for yourself. See, David understands this faith. He doesn't say taste and see the Lord is good, but also he says in verse 9, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. See, David understands the challenges of trusting in God. God. He understands the challenges of putting our trust in in God to be good and to guide him through the challenges that we face. We face challenges. Christians are not exempt from trials and tribulations and challenges in this world. We face them together. And so David understands that, that God is not just some tool in our toolbox to pick up or put down depending on whether or not we need him that day, but to taste and seize, to to, to, to lean on him, to rely on him, to look to him, to find our hope in him and our strength in him. See, God is to be feared, as David says in Psalm 34. And yet, this is a concept I think we all, well, many of us struggle with, I struggle with. Right to, to truly understand that concept of fear is a hard thing. And it helps us, I think, to understand that David uses two different words for fear here in Psalm 34. One is to describe the things that we are legitimately afraid of. The things that cause us to sweat and our hearts to race. The things that cause us to lose sleep and, and get anxious about, right? There's that type of fear. And then, then there's the type of fear... That that in the place of this first kind of fear, faith invites us to practice. It's the kind of fear that in, in, in the place where we are overwhelmed by by our worries and our, our concerns, that God invites us to practice the kind of fear that 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 holds God in high esteem and, and of reverence. See, God God gives us reasons for both kinds of fear, right? I mean, I think sometimes in the church we want to depict God as as our friend as a gentle savior and and he is but he's so much more than that too he's a god to be feared he's the creator of the whole universe he holds all power in his hand he can do anything he determines to do and we sometimes forget that i think that god is is one to be feared But in addition to that fear, he invites us to also practice the faith of fearing him in reverence and love and adoration. In the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis depicts this characteri- characterization of God in a conversation that, that Susan and Mr. Beaver have. Susan is one of the four children that are kind of central to the story, and, and Mr. Beaver is one of the animals that, that lives in Narnia, and they're having this conversation where Susan's finding out about, uh, about Aslan, who, who, is, who is a lion, and he's the depiction of God, right? He's the great lion. And and in this conversation, uh, Susan says this. She's she's unsure of what to think of God being this lion. And she says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. But then, get this, this is what Mr. Beaver says. He says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. See, church, our our God, our God is not safe. But he's, he's supremely good. He's supremely good. And so when you hold those two aspects of his character in unison together, we understand that there is a God that we can revere, not in fear, but in love and adoration and respect, knowing that that the the danger of God is not one that's used for harm, but for good. See, our safety is found in the goodness of the Lord, and it's found in the fear of the Lord. So, again, David helps us to understand a little bit about what, what he means by this, because if we were to ask, what is the fear of the Lord? David tells us, he tells us in verses 13 and 14. David says, "Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit, turn away from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. right Fearing the Lord is a life lived in response to God. Fearing the Lord is one of respect and adoration and, and, and holding God in high esteem, but' it's, it's that kind of life that that bears the fruit of of a moral life, of a life that is lived in obedience to God. You know, it's, it's not the first time that, that Scripture, or it's not the only time that Scripture speaks of this character of God in the Bible. Right? Micah 6.8, where Micah says this, he says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. See, there's there's a connection between living a moral life and enjoying the benefits of a moral life. But before we go too far down this road, I think we also have to listen to what Jesus says on this, this topic. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 19. Because simply doing the moral actions of a good life is not enough to fear the Lord, right? I may obey all of the scriptures But it's still not enough to fear the Lord because fearing the Lord is something that comes from the depth of our being. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 19. He he tells a story. He says, Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. By the way, notice the change that Jesus makes. The object of good is not a what. It's a who. What good deed must it do? No, no, no. you got it wrong, Mr. Man. Who is good? That should be the aim of your question. Anyway, he goes on. He says, if you would enter life, the good life, keep the commandments. Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witnesses. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. See, Jesus' invitation to the rich young ruler was was to find the good life in following Jesus in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And and don't be fooled for a second. Jesus doesn't negate the man's ethical actions of being obedient to God. He doesn't uh, condemn him for, for following the Ten Commandments and for obeying the law. He says, that's good and well, but you're still missing something. You need to You need to come and follow me. See, the good life, the the life that lacks no good thing can only be found in Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's not just talking about some directions on how we get from earth to heaven. He's talking about a quality and a character of, of life that's good. I think this has been man's struggle to understand this since the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were given all that they could have ever wanted. They lacked no good thing in the Garden of Eden. And yet the the question that, or the, the conversation that Satan has with them makes them doubt that. Makes them question the validity of that. Right? Satan says, has God really said that you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he, he makes them not just question God, but question their deepest desire for the good life in God could truly be found in God. He, he makes them believe, he, he allows them to think that the good life isn't really found in the Garden of Eden with God, but is somehow found outside of a relationship with God, that, that they don't have to obey God to find the good life, right? Right? They thought they, they knew better, and, and so they were fine with going outside the life of God in search of the good life. But all that they were left with was death, was separation, was being cast out from the life that, had, that lacked no good thing. Here's the thing. This is, this is where the gospel is so good, because that's not the case for you and I. It's not the case for you and I that we would have to live with the separation from God, the reality of a future of death, but a future of life and hope and a life that lacks no good thing. And it's not a matter of earning that with our actions, but of receiving it when we taste and see for ourselves that the Lord is good. See, what we have in Psalm 34 is the fulfillment of a promise that, that wasn't even as true as it is for us today as it was for David then. No, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm swapping that. It's more true for us today than it was for David when he wrote this psalm. See, this has actually become one of my favorite promises to, to, to lean on and to cling to in hard times. Listen as I read for us verse 18 from Psalm 34. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Let me read that again. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. One more time. Let's just let it sink in. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. See, God was not content to leave us in a state where we are separated from God. God was never satisfied for his creation to live a life outside of the garden. God desires for us to always live in that life that is good, that lacks no good thing. And so he sent his only son, Jesus, whom the scriptures refer to as Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Jesus paid the debt of death with his own life so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be reconciled to God in a relationship. See, what, the matter of our separation in, from the garden was a broken relationship. And so he sent his son to, to heal, to bind up that broken relationship so that we could be with God again. But if that wasn't enough, God's promise to, to, to Jesus' followers was to send the Holy Spirit who not only reanimates our hearts to life from death, but also dwells within us as we go forth and face this world. And so for David, the promise of the Lord being near to the brokenhearted was really that, that the Lord is, is near to... He saves the brokenhearted. He's near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. But for you and I... Because of the promise of the Holy Spirit, it means that the Lord is with those. He's in us. He's with us in those places where we are so aware of how brokenhearted we are, how 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 damaged we are. And he's at work in us, saving those who are crushed in spirit. And so for those who are whose hearts are broken this morning, this promise is true for you to take what is broken and God will make it whole again if you taste and see for yourself that the Lord is good. Church, David's testimony is an invitation to taste and see for yourselves, to taste and see that the Lord is good. He's the one that gets off the roller coaster and says, that was awesome, you've gotta try that. One way that the the church has made space in in their worship from the very beginning of the church's foundation in the New Testament, was to recite the psalms as they celebrated the Lord's Supper. Something that we're going to do together now. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But as we do, we look back on the way that the church has done it, and they turn to psalms like Psalm 34, 8, and say, taste and see that the Lord is good but they didn't, they didn't literally taste the bread and say, Mmm, this bread is good. And if you, if you took the cup off the table on the way in, the, 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 the prepackaged elements, uh, if you haven't already done so in a minute, you're going to understand it doesn't taste so good. But that's not what the invitation to taste and see really is, is it? The, the invitation as, as we take of the, uh, of the bread and, and drink of the cup is to, to take a moment to remember what Jesus has done on our behalf. To remember that uh, when he died on the cross, it was an opportunity to, to, to think on his death and his resurrection, to think on the good life that's provided through Jesus Christ himself. See, the Lord's Supper is a time to personally taste and see that the Lord is good for yourself and recommit your ways to walking in faith with him, to live out of obedience, not because it's gonna get us somewhere. But because we're already there and we're loving it, because we know that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And so this morning, we, we, we do that. We, we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and we're reminded of how Jesus invites his followers to celebrate the Lord's Supper Because on the night that he was betrayed, he he invites not just his disciples that are there with him around the table, but all of us to see this as a time where we might truly give the attention of our hearts and minds to God and say, God, when you invite me to taste and see that the Lord is good, you invite me to reflect on the goodness of a life that lacks no good thing in Jesus Christ. And so we're reminded that We as a church can taste and see that the Lord is good together as we come around the Lord's table together. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and after giving thanks for it, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat of it in remembrance of me. Church, taste and see that the Lord is good. We're reminded that after the supper, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, taste and see that the Lord is good. Heavenly Father, I thank you that, uh, that you invite us into a, a life, a life that lacks no good thing. Lord, uh, correct our minds to, think, uh, to go from thinking that, that we can find a good life outside of Jesus Christ somewhere in this world. We, I know that that's not true. I've, I've experienced it for myself. I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And so, Lord, we thank you for the life that you offer us through Jesus Christ. That we can find the good life in Jesus Christ as we put our faith in him, that his death on the cross healed a broken relationship because he, he paid a debt that we could not pay. And so, Lord, we give you thanks and gratitude for the good life, the life that that David reminds us of, that that he testifies of, but then also invites us to to taste and see for ourselves. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.